You are listening to The Wheel Nerds with Chuck and Todd. Hi, welcome to Wheel Nerds. This is episode 54. I'm Todd. And I'm Fake Chuck. You can call me Jen. <laughs> We're going to be talking about motorcycles and inappropriate footwear. Like sandals? Sandals are not inappropriate. Well, they are if you're riding a sport bike. Well, if you're riding not a sport bike. <laughs> if you're on any bike, I'm pretty sure sandals are inappropriate. I don't know. I think, you know, if you go by sheer numbers, uh, I, th- I think the, the wait, wait, evidence whoa, whoa, is against whoa. you. You just, you just pulled a logical fallacy. Oh, really? That is the ad populum mm-hmm. logical fallacy. I see. Everyone's doing it, therefore it must be right. If all your friends jumped off a bridge, see? oh God, I can yeah, hear my yeah, father. exactly. Oh, Only man. my father never used the word ad populum. I, I do that with my kids because I'm a geek. <laughs> Those poor, poor kids. So what is inappropriate footwear, Jen? I'm curious. Well, if you're, try- <laughs> if you're trying to test ride motorcycles, I would say a three-inch heel is probably <laughs> inappropriate footwear. So what- <laughs> this doesn't sound theoretical at all. Well, well no. Although, uh, Lee was going to let me ride anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. <laughs> well, so I had a really busy week. You know those horrible, horrible weeks where you work 60 hours... At work and you just hate everyone and it gets to be mm-hmm. Friday night and you think I have to ride a motorcycle right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. only if you don't have one that's problematic it is a problem turns into I have to buy a motorcycle yeah, right seriously. now so I thought well I'll swing by the Triumph BMW dealer on the way home it's like the next exit from where I sure, work it's right there I know it's pretty dangerous having it right there so I stopped and said hello, and it was 10 to 7, and they close at 7. But uh, Lee was great. He showed me all all the bikes, that, and he was actually going to let me ride, but I told him that I probably shouldn't in 3-inch heels since... <laughs> <laughs> There's a stability thing, right, with the wrong shoes. Sure. I, I have a really hard time walking in 3-inch heels. Yeah, it, it's just it's it's not, not appropriate for... Well... <laughs> now, 2-inch he heels, was, not nearly as... Now, he was relieved, actually, when I said, no, thank you, I appreciate... He was going to lend me a helmet, and he was going to let me ride, and I said, I'll come back when I have actual riding shoes. He said, oh, good. I usually don't let people ride, but I thought I would just make an exception today. And and that's when you drop the bike in the parking lot. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. The good news is that I actually found two bikes that fit me. Oh, good. The one that... I originally talked about uh-huh. the Thunderbird Storm. Yeah. Seven, so it's how a, was it? it? Heavy. I told you. I know, it's right? It's a whale. It's uh, 750 pounds, something like that. Holy shit. But it's, but it's low weight. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. It's still 150 it, pounds low. It, it's still, it's way too heavy. Honestly, it's not <laughs> the right bike. I'm not even going to... Not, not even entertaining it anymore. No, and I'm not going to even try riding it in the parking lot, even mm-hmm. if he offers it. I just think it would be stupid. Put, 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 crunch. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I gotta um, go. Yeah. <laughs> Slam! Do you take checks? I have one here that says Todd on it. Wait a minute. <laughs> just kidding. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the one I really liked, though, that fit very well, um, felt very comfortable on it, was the America. Huh. The British person's notion of a cruiser it was for the States. very patriotic, because it's named America. America. <laughs> I know. America! Wait, did it come with pork rinds and, like, like a waffle with, with beef on top of it? And That's why it's called the America. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. Overeating uh-huh. is yeah. required yeah. on this bike. No, it didn't come with any of that. Because, <laughs> once again, British bike, right? It's sticking chicken fried and steak fat. You'll love it. <laughs> 
So I'll get proper riding gear on and go back and try that when I am not working. Cool. That's a fun bike. That's got the same uh, parallel twin engine as uh, Chuck's uh, Thruxton and a bunch it, of other bikes, doesn't it? It does. It does. That's a pretty sweet engine. And it's it's, uh, it's only a 550 pounds, about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we so For I, some values of only. <laughs> <laughs> that was approximate. <laughs> I think the point is, it's 200 pounds less than the Thunderbird. Yeah, yeah, and you'll probably feel every pound less. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still over five times my weight, so... That's okay. I mean, most people are a lot lighter than their bikes. And if it falls over, frankly, once you're above about the 400-pound mark, once it's falling over, you kind of just got to let it go. That's... It's done. It's done. It's over. You can try to save it, but that always ends in hurt backs and hernias and, and looking really dumb as you just slowly set it down. Oh, see, and the whole looking dumb part. Yeah, you can't do that. No. That's unacceptable. Yeah. No, you got to look cool. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to look cool, you got to buy something, you know, some sort of fancy person bike like a Triumph, right? Well, that's what we're talking about, is Triumph. Triumph is classy. Classy. Hmm. <laughs> Just make sure you get your jackets with Steve McQueen all over them. Did I tell you about the guy who told me that I had to get either a Triumph or possibly a Ducati or maybe a BMW, but not a Harley? Okay, what was his logic behind this? Uh, well, he's, his accent clearly put him on the East Coast somewhere. And wait a minute, wait, stop. Was this guy wearing a big gold chain and a tiny little Speedo at the time? That he maybe talk like he's the, you gotta get a Ducati. Well, the Speedo might have been under the suit. Okay. But yeah, that kind of guy. That's exactly what <laughs> hey! I'm talking about. And then I was told by the Jersey City guy that that uh, is a friend of mine that I have to get a Harley because in his neighborhood, if you don't ride a Harley, you get your ass kicked. So I've had a lot of really interesting advice on the mm-hmm. type of bike I should sure. get, depending yeah. on the image that I want to mm-hmm. get. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you got to project the right image. I and mean, we got to know what tribe you're in, Jen. We talked about this last time. I don't want to be a tribe. Well, you're the tribe of Jen. <laughs> I'm in the Jen tribe. You can't be in the Jen tribe. I'm in the Jen tribe. There is only one. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot like when you do the clubhouse and you say no girls allowed and no girls want to come to the clubhouse. Yeah. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Just everybody wants to be in my club. Okay, you can be part of the Gen Tribe. If? There's got to be an if. Well, y- if you're cool. Oh, okay. You have to be classy. You have to be... Well, I don't what know. the hell show do you think you're I'm, on? I'm, well, I was just thinking, how do I round this out and still let you be part of the club? You're, you're it wasn't screwed. going anywhere. No, no, it wasn't going to happen. I lost it. No. So, let's go shopping. Okay. Okay. I think we should start with the Not Just Any Yamaha. So this is Not Just Any Yamaha. FCR 1000. 12000 fucking dollars. One of a kind Yamaha. Email me for details. The only one in the world. Thank God. Look at that bike. There is a reason. That is the only one of its kind. So this looks like it's an FZR 1000 somebody turned into a bobber. Now he's got he's got a raked out front and he looks like he's got double calipers on a single disc on the front, which I have say, can safely say I've never seen before. No, that well, one of a kind. That's right true. There. Duh, it's one of a kind. I dropped the ball on that one. And uh, no fender on the rear tire, so God forbid the road is sandy or you're in the rain. Uh 
Can you imagine the back of your head, especially if you're not wearing a helmet? It's going to flip up, gravel mm-hmm. like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah, it is. This, you're going to have that. You're going to have that awesome like stripe up your back, mm-hmm. like the bikers have, where it looks like they pooped their pants and it f- flew upward. Yeah. Do you think he actually rode this bike after taking the fender off? Well, looking at the tires, no. No, I don't, I don't think, think so. he did. Yeah. No, this this uh, this rolled around a parking lot a few times. So not so much thinking ahead on what could happen if I take off the rear fender. Well, I think he, probably, he was probably thinking is it will look totally awesome. Oh, oh, wait, this isn't a bike you ride. Right, it looks totally awesome. You put this in your garage. Yeah, look at this totally awesome bike I have. And it's, then you have friends over or just kind of people you know who are willing to come over for free beer. People put up, yep, okay, yep, then. Bribes are good. They've had a beer. You say... Let me show you my garage. Hey, I got this bike. And out in the garage. It's one of a kind. It is one of a kind. Thank God. And it's never been ridden. So if you got a bike like this you don't ride, I guess you probably need a trailer, won't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, should, we should check out this killer trailer. It's 18-foot by 7.5-foot trailer, needs fenders and flooring, but would make a killer motorcycle trailer. If it had the trailer parts. Because how are you going to put a motorcycle on there? Well, you got to get flooring, don't you? If it has no flooring, you lay it down and you bungee it to it. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I bungee stuff to my motorcycle all the time. So for the first 250, can have it. Serious calls only, no texts or trades. Serious calls only. He said thank you. Yeah, that's a plus. He said thank you. phone number with thank you. Mm -hmm. Which is much better than the don't waste my time comments. You know, but here's the thing. The serious calls only is almost the don't waste my time. Which, as we know, is code for looks like complete shit in person. Right, right. So he's going to pressure you. If you actually do show up to look at this thing... Yeah, it's going to be the hard sale. You have to act serious. you got to. you got to be serious. Mm, mm. Does it have wheels? Uh, it's hard to tell. I think those are, those are either wheels or two barrels on which the back of the trailer so, is sitting. So really, it might not be a trailer. It might be a sled with no floor. See, that's now he could sell it as a sledge, you know, and and it's it's a sledge with bonus wheels, probably. (laughs) Sledge with with optional wheels. Look, that makes it one of a kind. How many of those do you find online? Oh, I don't know, but uh, I uh, here's one now. That's really a thing, isn't can, it? Can we not buy this? I, I think we should we should not buy this. Or I mean, it's cheap at least. So when you've spent all your money already buying the one of a kind Yamaha, thank God. You could buy this killer trailer. Yeah, for for almost nothing. Yeah. Which is funny because the trailer is composed, as far as I can tell, of almost nothing. So it's it's appropriately priced. Our last one today. This one is awesome. Not wow. just awesome, but awesome. Awesome. Spelled cool guy. See, this is the kind of awesome that appeals to younger guys. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a can't spell. Nothing younger guys like like Triumph Daytonas from the nineties, right? Okay. So I have an awesome and one of a kind Triumph Daytona nine fifty five I for sale. This particular bike has been very well taken <laughs> care of and has been modified completely for power, speed, and torque. <laughs> Was it owned by a pirate? He's spelling Turkey. Very well taken care of. It's probably a type. (laughs) This particular bike has been test ridden by three Triumph racer mechanics who are all amazed how much more power, torque, and balls my bike has than their own track bike. Their bike has. I just like to reiterate this one. No, no, it doesn't. It has more power, torque, (laughs) and balls. They weren't amazed. Power, torque, and balls. They were amazed. That clearly oh, says you're right. amazed. Yes, they were amazed. They were amazed by the power, more power, torque, and balls. Power, torque, and balls have that effect on a lot of people. You know, I think the more power, torque, and balls is the new don't waste my time. It's a possibility. I don't think I've ever seen someone spell torque that way or note balls right, but on a bike. It's a new thing. He's setting a trend. 
Yes, I think so. This guy is a trendsetter. He is he is at the <laughs> forefront of of motorcycle sales. I mean, look at some of this stuff. It's got brand new front brake pads, and that's in capitals. But the power commander isn't because everybody's got a power commander, <laughs> but not everybody's brakes. <laughs> not like those are expensive. Or My other brakes. personal yeah. favorite is brace yourself. It's got a brand new high performance battery. <laughs> Maybe he's emphasizing these things. Because he was the one who put in the new brake pads and the battery. Ooh, I bet you're right. Yeah. This is just some douche who put on new brake pads and put in a new battery on the thing. And he's super excited because he managed to do all those four screws by himself. He did the work. Mm-hmm. It was a new thing for him. Yes. He's capitalizing his work. Yes, and he's setting a trend for others. Uh, I'm beginning to like Brake pads! Power door balls. Power door balls! <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he'll only take a cash offer or a great trade. And it handles like a Cadillac, which is exactly how you exactly want your how you bike want. to handle. <laughs> Wait, does it mean it does that awesome thing in the turns where you do the over, it does the oversteer, and it does the slush box, like thing where it tilts from side to side? And it goes, whoosh, 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 whoosh. I love that shit. I fucking love it. Why drive when like, you can oh. sail? Yes, yeah, suddenly I'm in the backseat of my grandfather's Cadillac. That's exactly how they doing ride. That, it's doing that bride engineered slush box thing down the road. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is a bike I want. Yes. Oh, he, I also have several thousands of dollars of riding gear, including Italian designer full leather pants and jacket I might throw in for the right offer. So if you're the same size as this guy... Yeah. ...and don't mind wearing his... Sweaty-ass leathers <laughs> full of ball sweat, That's torque sweat, eight. and power sweat, presumably. Power torque and balls leathers! Sweat. <laughs> no, that sounds actually disgusting. I <laughs> That's not a value add. He, he probably should have run this past someone. You know how you have somebody in your life who is your reality check when you're mm-hmm. when you're doing something and you think actually I need should reality. I put power torque and balls in an advertisement? Let me call my reality check person and run this past. He doesn't have that person. In I his don't life. think so. No, no, I'm not thinking it's happening. So Chuck and I recorded an interview with Mark Zimmerman. He's the guy who wrote the uh, Essential Guide to Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, very cool. The one I told you to buy for your son. I did. You know, I actually read part of that book. <laughs> And then I said, screw it. I have a job. I pay people to, <laughs> to do, do this for, like this for me. me. <laughs> and I know Todd. <laughs> I know someone else who would like this book better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're on with Mark Zimmerman, author of my favorite motorcycle repair book, uh, The Essential Guide to Motorcycle Maintenance, and an assortment of other cool motorcycle wrenching books. Is he also the author of the interview guide for evaluating DSM for psychiatric disorders and the mental status examination? It's a good question, Mark. Are you also writing uh, psychiatric papers, or is there just somebody with your name that shows up? Yeah, on somebody caught my name. A <laughs> smarter than me, I think. There, there's uh, also the guy from Star Trek that played the uh, doctor on the last series, who's named Mark Zimmerman. So I always get confused with him. Too. <laughs> You're the dude from yeah, Star Trek. The connection is. That was well. We have to confess that was actually the whole reason we we have you on the Wait, show. Wait, you're not the Star Trek guy. This interview is over. I figured you guys were Trekkies or something. <laughs> Let me start by asking, Mark. Uh, you were uh, looking at Gucci parts before we uh, got on the phone with you. But uh, what current uh, biker project are you swearing at in your garage these days? Um, my stuff actually is all pretty much together and running. Uh, mm. I have a lot of spare time. So, it which seems. of your friends has brought over a bike? I'm currently working on a land speed record project. 
He's very accomplished. Racer was an outlaw sprint, was on the outlaw sprint car tour, and which is my only concern. Um, he managed to total the same car two years in a row at the same racetrack, so huh. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so you're you're building this one to last, I hope. <laughs> yeah, it's got to last at least seven miles. After that, the bets are off, but it's based on a an or, earlier um, Honda CX Turbo 500. Ooh. The reason we picked that is is because we're going for the low hanging fruit, and in that class, the speed limit is uh, the speed record is actually uh, very low. So, will you be uh, coming out to Bonneville for that when you're ready to run it? I think we're going we're gonna to try it there. We, we're actually working uh, on a second Bonneville project that's moving at the speed of smell. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, I see you've yeah, met I don't Todd before. We'll see that one anytime soon. That's going to be a vintage project based on it. We're actually building two engines for the same chassis. One's one's a Norton motor, and one's a Triumph uh, T140 engine. When they're done, we're going to dyno them. Whichever one makes the most horsepower is going to go into chassis. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's a good way to do it. Reason for that? It sounds kind of duplication of effort, but the third member of the team owns a, a competition a car engine shop. Here in town, he mm. does a lot of oval track race cars, does a lot of NASCAR work, contract work. And he's convinced the Norton's going to make more horsepower because that cylinder head design's a little more efficient. They show up, they turn up big numbers on, on flow benches. But if you look at the record book, they haven't been all that successful. Commando-based engines haven't been very successful land speed records. Overall, the Triumphs have really been the engine of choice so i'm i'm convinced the t140 is going to make more he's convinced that norton is going to be a more powerful motor so so this sounds like something that involves a bet and a lot of beer well neither one of us is big beer drinkers <laughs> i'm actually a maker's mark drinker oh okay and, and then a bet and a good bottle of the <laughs> yeah he's more kind of a coca-cola drinker but like by the five gallon pail <laughs> he's my people <laughs> you know Coffee and Coca-Cola is what keeps him going. I've been up for an hour and a half, and I'm on my third soda already. Well, that's good. That's good for you. That gets you that high diabetic coma. I don't. You know? I don't need bones. Yeah, but th- those are the only projects I'm working on. The, the um, actually the turbo to get back to that, we're going to run up in Maine. Uh, oh, hmm. there's an old Air Force base up there. It had a B-52 uh, emergency landing strip on it. That's not the one in Limestone, is it? You know, I'm not sure. Because I think I went to a fish concert there once. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that, that sounds about right. Um, it's pretty far up. I think it's it's about the it's close to the Canadian border up yep. near Calais. Yeah, that that's limestone, all right. So that's yeah, where Todd okay, lost then. his virginity. Pardon? What? <laughs> He's just making shit up now. Yeah, that yeah. came. Yeah, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Todd hasn't lost his virginity. No. No, we can come on out to Connecticut. We'll, we'll hook you up. <laughs> the massage parlor capital of the world, I think, the town I live in. Well, I, I haven't heard that as that a tagline. I have before. never heard that about Connecticut. I always just thought yeah. of it as like the big New York City suburb. Yeah, no, come to Connecticut. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, well, card. actually, I'm in Danbury, which which isn't nobody from New York lives here. So Danbury was the hat capital of the world. That's our claim to fame. Okay. Yeah, we made all the hats here back in the day. Doesn't, oh. doesn't making hat drive people crazy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my wife's uncle was convinced. He was what they called a fuller, which was actually the guy that dipped his hands into the mercury and molded the, the uh, like, um, fedoras and stuff back in the 30s yeah. and 40s. Yeah. They would use mercury to keep the, the uh, felt moist and pliable, 
and these guys, they would literally dip their bare hands into the stuff. Yeah, yeah. By about 1970, when I came on the scene, he was pretty, pretty nutty. The Mad Hatter nutty isn't just a character right. in a book. The Mad Hatter is like a real historical yeah, disease. That's, that's very true. <laughs> Occupational hazard. <laughs> and they actually used to call, or at least in this area, they would call it the Danbury disease. He's got the Danbury shape. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, the whole town was actually built around hat factories from, I, they started in the 1600s, Stetson, Mallory, all the, the huge, the cowboy hats were all built here. Mm. Every military hat was built here, made here. The industry kept the town alive until uh, certainly the early 70s, and it was one reason why why this, this area has always been a real hotbed for motorcycle racing. When I was a kid, there were 15 racetracks within a 45-minute drive. Holy crap. Danbury. Wow. Yeah, so it explains a lot about why I'm into what I'm into. Part of the reason was kids could quit school at 16 or 17 years old, go to work in these hat factories, and make big money. It was all piecework. So if they were quick and they didn't care how soon they got mercury poisoning, they could make two or three hundred bucks a week in 67 and 68. Which would be... That was huge yeah. money. Yeah, and yeah. To, to support the machinery in the hat factories, there was a machine shop on every corner. And a lot of them specialized in tool and die making and stuff for the big hat factories. So everybody knew somebody who was a machinist. And, you know, if, if I needed something made, I, I had a... Uh, you back knew a in guy. The 70s, I ran a BSA single in dirt track. And the cam let go one Friday afternoon. I, I took it over to a buddy of mine that worked at one of these shops that made, you know, hat factory tooling. He looked at it and said, oh, yeah, I can make that. They used cams. They ground cams for use in the big machinery. Next morning, I had a new cam for basically a case of beer. Wow. So that, this is an economy. Also, yeah, it supported the economy. And because of that, there was a lot of racing, a lot of crazy. There was five or six motorcycles. At the time, the town had was about 50,000 people. And there were five motorcycle shops. Wow. So, so you got a bunch of young guys who are crazy with a pocket with a full of money, of money. <laughs> and <laughs> machine exactly. shops. Motorcycle racing, ready to go. <laughs> exactly what happened. There was also 147 bars <laughs> in one three mile stretch. Well, you know, if you got crazy young guys with machine shops, you got to have the bars. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And the local Triumph dealer got out of the, the Navy in 48, 49, and he was an orphan. Bought a brand new Triumph from Johnson Motors, Pasadena. Was riding out with one of his shipmates to visit their family before he decided what he was going to do for the rest of his life. He got to Danbury at, at 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and Thursday was the traditional payday for the, the hat factory workers. <laughs> and Route 6 runs from Santa Monica Pier to Cape Cod, Rhode Island. Well, they're coming oh, yeah. down Route 6. It runs right through the center of Danbury, and he hit White Street, where these 147 or so bars were located, like at 3.30, 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> Saw the activity. This is it. I'm opening a Triumph dealership, and then I'm opening it right here in Danbury. <laughs> Between these two bars. <laughs> yep. Well, they washed away. Unfortunately, there was a flood in, in the late 50s, and they all washed away, which I think was probably a good thing, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's how our local triumph dealer ended up here. Wow. So in an environment like that, it's not hard to see how you got into uh, wrenching on motorcycles. No, it's, it's uh, yeah, it was everywhere. It was endemic in the area. When you set out to write the essential guide to motorcycle maintenance, I mean, the Climber and Haynes were just ubiquitous, I'm assuming, yeah. at the time. Um, what gave the idea that you should write one that was kind of not bike-specific? 
Well, I needed some money. And, uh, <laughs> he didn't want right to do, one, do hats. Yeah, there were. You're right. There's a lot of bike-specific manuals, and with the Haynes are are pretty good. Chilton, not so much. I, I don't think. No, no knock on on anybody that works there, but it's just the format that they used. And saying that, I must have 50 of those things laying around that date back into the early 60s. But I I spoke at the time to the, the publisher was is Dan Kennedy at Whitehorse Press and he had actually offered the project to somebody else that bailed and he had this outline that they'd put together and I looked at it and uh, like I said I needed the money to build a race bike and I thought well I'll bang this one out in about two days <laughs> based on his original outline and I looked at it and I said uh, it's not really what I wanted to do and. I've worked on every, anything and everything that you can think of. I, I started as a motorcycle mechanic in 1969. Uh, among other things, I worked for John Whitner, who was the Dr. John of Dr. John's Motoguzzi. And he taught me really that you're, you're better off, you'll make a lot more money if you can work on everything, know mm. something about everything, mm. than you ever will specializing in one brand. And it's worked for me. And I realized that there wasn't a manual. There were plenty of manuals that told you piston the cylinder wall clearance. But there weren't that many out there that told you why that was necessary. Mm. And after I looked at this outline, I told Dan, you know, I, I really don't want to do this book, but why don't we kind of do a general guide? And my thinking when I made the proposal was that anybody with a 15-year-old mindset should be able to pick this book up, read it, and be able to go out and at least get his motorcycle to run, whether you were new to it or you'd been in it for 30 years and you know there's a lot of guys been riding for years and for all they know there's there's seven little dwarfs in there turning that crankshaft they don't they don't know <laughs> there's and not. they don't care but if you keep the dwarfs happy you know the thing will run for years that that was it you know maybe you're new to riding and 60 years old and, and just want to know what the guy behind the service counter is talking about and maybe you're a 15 year old kid that's just got a hundred dollar bike and figures hey what the hell i can fix this or you're a you're a you're a 26-year-old man who's just bought a crappy old GS750 and you have no idea why the book is telling you to <laughs> pull this part yeah. off. And a lot of the, one of the problems I noticed in my career as a mechanic, and, and I, I do still work as a mechanic on a daily basis, and you see it more now than ever, but the, the problem with factory manuals is they assume a certain level of knowledge and mm. expertise. So if, if you're rebuilding, for example, a Bosch diesel fuel pump, it assumes that you understand why certain things have to be done in a certain manner and, and how the pump actually works and interacts with the rest of the engine. It's not always the case with motorcycles, you know. There's, it's a hobby-driven field. Mm -hmm. And a lot of guys, they get just as much pleasure bolting on some piece of chrome or whatever as they do actually riding a bike. And you certainly see that now. Guys, you know, have 10-year-old bikes with 2,000 miles on them, but boy, they got every accessory in the world. <laughs> yeah, and, he's, you know, he's we right. just thought there was a, kind of a need for that, and it, it worked out. Originally, the book, when I handed it in, was 300,000 words. It took me three years to do it. And by the time I handed it in, as I'm sure you know from reading it, it had to be edited down to something read by. I forget what the final word count worked out to be. We were originally supposed to be 50,000 words, mm -hmm. and it's something more than that. And uh, some typos crept in, mainly because uh, when it came time to proofread it, I was just, I didn't even want to see it. I never <laughs> wanted to look at the thing again. 
So there's some, I think at one point it says, uh, we'll talk about the two-stroke engine first and then dives right into four-stroke. That was actually one that tripped me up. I bought I bought a two-stroke scooter, and I'd never worked on a two-stroke before, so I was like, oh, time to pull out Zimmerman's book. Let's see. How the hell does a two-stroke work? Dun, 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 dun. We'll talk about two-strokes first. Great. That's not a two-stroke. <laughs> yeah, you have to go a few pages. So. I worked it out. <laughs> on the flip side, you never actually say that most annoying of things – installation is the reverse of these steps that's yeah because it never is <laughs> Aha, me. validation i drew my first paycheck as a mechanic 45 years ago anyway and i can tell you i have never yet seen one that was the reverse of the disassembly process it just <laughs> doesn't work that way and i'd like to find a guy that came up with that, that and that, kill him yeah i'm gonna beat him <laughs> i'm gonna beat him with a part that broke trying to install it the same way it came apart. You're going to take him apart and then tell him reassemble it. Put yourself back together, dude. So that actually brings up an interesting point. Bikes these days are getting a lot more complex. You know, you get the throttle by wire, you got the electronic doohickey magic butt warmers, who knows. Mm -hmm. All the computerized stuff. Does it seem to you like that's getting, is that getting more hostile toward people wrenching at home or is it just, uh, is it a natural evolution? Well, yeah, it's it's not only hostile to the people trying to do their own repairs. It's it's extremely difficult for the professional mechanic to stay proficient. Part of the problem, yeah, the bikes have be- become as they become more reliable, they've become much harder to fix. I've said that in any number of ways, any number of times. Electronic ignition is the greatest thing in the world until it fails, and when it fails, it, generally it's easy to diagnose the. They're not particularly complex, but if it's Saturday afternoon or, or Sunday morning and you're on the road and that thing gives up the spark, you're not getting home. Even an old Magneto bike from the 50s or 60s, you could, and, and I've done this on more than one occasion, if the Magneto packs up, all you have to do is find your, usually the bike had a battery. I'm thinking of like slash two BMWs. You tie the ignition coil into the battery or go to the nearest auto parts store or find a junk car on the side of the road. You run the, the points to the coil, run power the coil through the battery, you can get home. Old Lucas stuff gets knocked all the time. You could fix it on the side of the road and get yourself home. Your R1 Yamaha, new BMW 1600, if it gives it up, you're not going home, man. Even if you're you're very savvy, you're still not going to be able to fix it, it you know, unless it's something like a kickstand safety switch and, and you're smart enough to bypass it. So that's created huge problems. And it's created problems for the, the mechanics because not only have they done that, but motorcycle service schools used to be kind of a perk of the motorcycle industry. The, the mechanics would wait till the winter time, and then the dealers would send them to school. For Honda had had dozens of schools, and every year you, you'd be taught the updates, you would be taught the latest diagnostic techniques. Plus, you would sit in a room with thirty other mechanics for a week, or in the case of Yamaha, two weeks. And the guy next to you may have run into a problem 30 times that you had just experienced for the first time and could offer some insight. So there was a great exchange of ideas and and information. Nowadays, the service schools are pretty much done. I'm I'm sure somebody's going to make a liar out of me and say, oh, but we have service schools. And I know Triumph still has them down in Atlanta. But most of the manufacturers have gone to an online training system. BMW offers both. They offer uh, classroom instruction and online. What happens that motorcycle business, the, the mechanics themselves, notoriously underpaid. Even guys at the factory level, the service reps, uh, 
race team mechanics. Unless you're working for, for Valentino Rossi, you're not making shit. So it's it's become a huge problem. Consequently, they hire 21, 22-year-old, 23-year-old kids. Yeah, uh, it's always unsettling. If they've gone to AMI, they're current for a year or two until the technology passes them by. If they're really sharp kids, maybe they do the online training on their own because they're not going to get paid for it. The dealers aren't going to sit them down. Um, I just took the international trucks, international, you know, IHC training course for their latest generation of, of pollution controlled engines and stuff. And it's difficult. It's a real pain in the ass. And it takes, you know, you're looking at 40 hours of training that you have to force yourself to take. And you're in a room, there's no one to talk to, you know, you're just sitting in front of your computer screen. So that kind of stuff has also made it more difficult to diagnose stuff. And a lot of stuff isn't re really, um, I don't want to say it's not repairable, but a lot of the electronic controls, yeah, you can go into a new Harley and, and plug in your PhD uh, software and it says, this is, you know, here's the code, replace these components in this order until the mm -hmm. code goes away. So, yeah, are you fixing something or are you just swapping out the parts? That being said, of course, um, you know, if you're rebuilding forks, you're rebuilding suspension components, brakes, whatever. Rebuilding a basic engine, it's still a mechanical task. Is online training, con I mean, sitting in front of a computer and, and watching a presentation or whatever, it, does that work for, for mechanics? I mean, it, to I me, mechanics so. seem like, it seems like more of a hands-on kind of thing. you got to... Yeah. Um, my experience and the guys that work for me, it's not particularly effective it kind of gives you the information you need. It familiarizes you a little bit with the components and where they're located and stuff, but it's it's really not a good system. A friend of mine is a service manager for a large BMW dealership. He is real into it, but what BMW does is they make you take the online training as a prerequisite to the course, to the sit-down course. Mm -hmm. In that instance, it works because when you go in and sit down, the instructor doesn't have to walk you through the basics of like a throttle body or a fuel injection system or, or um, ABS, you know, and mm -hmm. how the various sensors are configured. He can and dive right into the, the real hard stuff, the meat and potatoes stuff that he can't figure out. But to just sit down and, and take a course, um, you know, on, on uh, turbochargers or, or whatever the case may be, it's good in the sense that it does familiarize the, the basic componentry, the basic plumbing and stuff. But it still doesn't tell you, for instance, you can take a course on on turbos, and, and I use that as an example only because that was the international one I looked at. Walks you through, it takes about four hours to do the whole thing. All kinds of great information, but it doesn't tell you that the simplest way to diagnose, if you suspect you have a bad turbo in your, your international truck or tractor, the simplest thing is to unplug the air cleaner, reach in, put your thumb and forefinger on the turbo wheel and see if it moves up and down. If it does, the bearing shot. And that's the only thing that goes wrong with them. But nowhere in the training does it tell you stuff like that. And that was the kind of stuff you got with hands-on training. Mm -hmm. Undo that hose clamp, reach in there with your hand, and move. Get sucked in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, make sure the engine's off. <laughs> good good advice in many situations. Damn but, it. But there's, there's, there's big money. Learn that, but, yeah. there's, there's big money in that though. That computer based training stuff is, you know, they're off they're they're hawking this to every uh every big company in the world. Oh, this yeah. will save five, you bajillions. Five grand courses, I 
Yeah, 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 I, yeah. That's what it costs to take the international stuff anyway. About five grand for the um, like the 2012 update course they call it. Yeah, online training everywhere. Yeah, it's just hands-on. It's years of experience. That's the only way to become, I think, a, a really proficient mechanic. And I, and I like to use the term mechanic. I don't like technician. Technician implies something else to me. Kevin Cameron once said, the reason the best tuners are able to see so far is because they're standing on a huge pile of broken parts. And <laughs> that's pretty much true. Some of the lessons are, are hard to learn. You know, hard to learn. It, it's um, something as simple as loosening a big nut or a big bolt. Most of the schools I've seen, they, they don't teach practical mechanics. They don't, what I would call blacksmith work. You got a large bolt. Um, I can't think of something, maybe an axle nut or some motorcycle that won't budge. Well, hit it one time with a big hammer. You'll shock it loose. The thing will spin right off nine times out of ten. And the tenth time, you're going to have other issues anyway. Boing! <laughs> nobody, yeah, nobody tells you stuff like that, you know? Nobody tells you to, to heat up rusted, solid hardware. Get it red hot, let it cool off. Do it two or three times before you try and loosen it so that you don't break the stud or the bolt or whatever it is. So if, you, if you're a guy and you, and you just bought your new your Triumph, your new BMW, and you're, you're trying to start out work, wrenching on your own bike, what, what kind of tools do you think are kind of essential to have in the garage for that? Head on over to Sears and buy one of their basic maintenance kits and a torque wrench. Oh, okay. Spend 200 bucks, 300 bucks. Uh, especially the new bikes, the maintenance is so simple. Jesus Christ, you pretty much do it with with an open end wrench if you're really careful. You know, box wrench or so. Yeah, adjustable. Mm -hmm. The basic, uh, and this is one of the things I tell any any new guy, whether you're you want to be a truck mechanic, a bulldozer mechanic, an airplane mechanic, or a motorcycle mechanic, go to Sears, buy a basic tool set for Christ. They're on sale for two hundred under two hundred bucks most days. Plus, they'll throw in a nice little box. You don't need anything fancy. You don't have to go rob a bank and, and attack the snap-on truck. That stuff is great. looks pretty. It's shiny. It's neat. But, you know, Sears sells, sells a basic wrench set. I think it's 7 millimeters to 19 millimeters, which is just about all you'll need to work on a motorcycle. They get 20 bucks for it. Snap-on gets three or $400 for the same set. So guys look at that and say, oh, I can't afford to do my own work. But Sears, Sears stuff is good. It's high quality. I have a and buddy we that, need a copy of your book, too, right? Well, yeah, that's always handy. But even <laughs> that's not necessary. The owner's manual will walk you through an oil change. Tire pressure check. You know, that's one the thing about the modern bike. They just don't, they don't do need the, much maintenance. Do the modern manuals still walk you through how to do that? Or do they just say, go to your dealer and hand over your credit card? Yeah, um, it's a mix. I, I was just reading through... Uh, there's a Royal Enfield manual or something. A lot of them will take you to the point where you, you've disabled the bike before they say, and this needs to be performed. So always read through it you know, <laughs> before you start, just to see what the ending is. Even skip to the ending, you know, it's not a military novel. <laughs> but, yeah, some of them do. They'll, they'll show the oil you where filter did it. is. And, um, and a few of them, I've noticed, will show you how to do it and then tell you to take it to the dealer. I guess maybe they're trying to scare you off. But what I would recommend... If you're new to all this and you really want to work on your motorcycle, I, I hate to pimp my own stuff. Yeah, my book walks you through 99% of it. The problem is that nobody, no matter how good they can write, 
or talk on the telephone or, or interview can tell you what properly adjusted steering head bearings feel like. You know, there's formal measurements for all that stuff. Harley-Davidson has their bounce test, and you can use a fishing scale and a torque wrench, and there's, there's all kinds of measurements. But 99% of the time, steering head bearings are adjusted by feel. They may be checked with a gauge, you know, and a, and a good mechanic will check them with a gauge just to make sure. But stuff like that is feel. Mm-hmm. I don't measure chain slack when I adjust a chain. You know, it's it's something I look at and say, yeah, that, that looks good. That's, That's loose. Know, let's t- tighten it up. It's done. It's over. You don't uh, put a, a ruler up to it to see if it's an inch and a quarter? Just like they show in the books. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually use my micrometer to make sure it's perfect. <laughs> now, pretty much I put my fat ass on it, and if I can move the chain, it's good. If it's like a bowstring, <laughs> nah, it's not so good. You know? But, <laughs> That's great. You can, when you go to your doctor, it's, he'll be like, well, you know, you, you need to lose some weight. No, no, this is, my ass is a finely tuned instrument. Yeah, I can't. I, I'd like to, Doc. All my adjustments are going to be off. It's you know, all I, based off my ass. Christ, I lost 10 pounds. Now i got to go. It's a big problem with my race bike. You know, you lose 10 pounds or more, in my case, gain 10. you got to go back and reset every suspension adjustment on it. <laughs> Christ. Easier not to eat for a week. <laughs> but it's, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that is kind of an issue with with stuff like that, is that all the manuals... We'll walk you through it. And that's sometimes in, in my writings, not so much in, in uh, well, yeah, the manual, but like my monthly columns and articles for the different magazines that I do, I tend to simplify it to the point where it's almost infantile. But if you haven't done it, you don't realize how much feel is involved. It's just one of those things that you, it's almost difficult to put into words how how long it takes to feel, you know, um, given time and experience, you can listen. I'm sure you've heard engines that, that, you know, that just sound sweet, no matter where, whether they're modern or vintage or they sound like a sewing machine. That feel, to get that engine to that point or to get that bike to go around corners, that just takes doing it, you know. You want to get your bike to handle? Back off all the suspension adjustments. Find out what it feels like for a bike not to handle you know, make it so it won't handle at all. Hmm. Then gradually work it back. All that stuff takes takes time and practice. And, and to some degree, it, it takes... Um, Screwing up. Absolutely. Although routine maintenance shouldn't break anything. Yeah. That's, that's kind of counterproductive. What? <laughs> routine maintenance shouldn't break anything, Chuck. I'm not the yeah. one who stripped our oil bolt. If, if you're doing that, you're really not paying attention. Or it's a really profound lack of experience. Guilty. Yeah, and you see that. I mean, I, I do see that from time to time. I'll, I'll look at something and say, what the fuck happened? You know? It's, oh, I never... I, I You've seen my bill then. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. did that, that, that. But, you know, and that, at that point, you, you just, you know, go get coffee. I'll fix it. And you'll see that. I see it with guys who have 40, 50 years in trade. Some guys are just ham fists, you know? They just, they became mechanics because it was easy. One guy, I walked into the shop one day, and one guy, guy had about 45 years in the trade. And I said, yeah, what are you doing? He says, we got to stop buying Wagner taillight bulbs. I said, why? Wagner's like the number one name in the bulb industry. Automotive bulbs are all Wagner. And no matter where you get them, they're going to be Wagner. He said, well, I put five in this light and none of them work. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know what? <laughs> Might not be the bulb. <laughs> but, you know, there's a guy that presumably knew better. So I probably was stopped at four. Yeah, or, money at two. Well, I'm always, you know, I don't trust anything. So two, I might try another one, but you know what? Get a Tesla, plug it in. Oh yeah. Hey Mark, let's uh, let me ask you a question about yourself. How how'd you get into being a writer? I mean, you sound like a you know really dyed in the wool mechanic guy. What made you want to like start putting scribbly marks on a piece of paper and have other people look at them? Um. I always wanted to write. I went all the way back to, well, certainly to high school. Ironically, I had a difficult time learning to read. My mom, who was a school teacher, thought I was like retarded, I think, which probably isn't far from it. But once I did learn to read, I was voracious, and I'd read everything I could get. So by the time I was like 7th or 8th grade, I think I, I wanted to write. And I was also nuts about motorcycles by then. Hmm. But I kind of wanted to be like a crime reporter, you know, <laughs> expose the dark underbelly of politics or something. But I was also a troublemaker and, and gave me a very hard time. <laughs> so when I was in ninth grade, I turned in a composition. And the teacher, who was young, she was like first year out of college, gave me an A-plus with a note that said, see me. I went to see her and... and uh, I said, what's this? She said, well, she said, this is excellent. It was about riding motorcycles, of course, what else? Mm -hmm. She said, I'm going to give you an A+, plus, but you have to prove that you wrote it. <laughs> she said, I don't think you're capable of writing something like this, so I want you to write another essay. I said, I'll tell you what, you have everybody in the class write another essay, and I'll do it. If not, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> so... When I returned to school, she, I think she gave me a D for the year. And I wouldn't write again until I got in high school. And I wow. took a creative writing course in high school. I did okay. And uh, and one day the, the instructor said, you're a cancer in my class. I want you out of here. So that, <laughs> at that point, I thought, eh, I probably shouldn't write. Then uh, I knew a guy named Buzz Canner from, uh, casually from uh, Club Road Racing. And Buzz started a magazine called um, Old Bike Journal. Currently publishes American Iron. You guys must have seen that even out there. Mm -hmm. At the time, we weren't really good friends, but we were more than acquaintances, you know, casual friends, I guess you'd call them. And he said, I'm starting a motorcycle magazine. I, I need something to fill up the pages. Can you write something? He knew I, I had aspirations to write. He said, can you fill up, uh, give me like a thousand words on how to buy a new motorcycle? I said, yeah, sure, you know, no problem. And he gave me 75 bucks for it. This is like 87. And then he made you prove you wrote it. Yeah, yeah and then I had to go get a note from my mom. Saying, <laughs> and then I had to get somebody to prove that she wrote the note. It was messy. But, uh, you misspelled mob. Ah, oh, come on. Just pretend. Uh, that's how, actually how I got started. And I, I wrote for him for kind of escalated and um then he started a magazine called road bike and i started to do a lot of work for them it, it turned into almost a full-time job then uh darwin holmstrom called me i was talking i guess i was talking to darwin we were doing the, the book how to restore your motorcycle that's actually kind of an essential guide for restoration and that was pretty well received too and he said geez i know a woman <laughs> It needs a technical writer named Jamie Elvich. And I said, well, is she 
what's she like? He said, well, you're going to have to decide, but here's her number. Call her. So I called Jamie, and she was just off the wall. He had her motorcycle cruiser at the time. And I guess she figured, well, if he doesn't work out, I'll just fire him. <laughs> but um, she hired me a motorcycle cruiser, which was great. But she can write, she can ride. Um, and I've been with Cruiser ever since. So that that's kind of the condensed version. Anything coming down soon you want to plug? Yeah, no. Problem with writing books, it's like wading into a swamp, you know? You, you just, they burn up a ton of time, and you're never sure um, what's going to happen. And rewriting sucks. Yeah, there's rewrites, and, and the problem with a book like The Essential Guide is that when I started the book, Fuel Injection was a novelty. When I finished the book, it was state-of-the-art, and now I have a, I'm actually doing a test on a Royal Enfield Chrome, and that's got fuel injection on it. And I'm thinking if... if Entry-level bikes from India are coming with fuel injection. <laughs> you know, what's next? So th there's the technology, and you kind of have to, um, to write a book, you really have to sit down. Like I, I said, the, the essential guide took three years start to finish, but here's something nobody really knows. And it, you, so you guys are in on the ground floors. This is the scoop for this interview. Okay. Even though I had the the bulk of the book kind of roughed out and outlined and done. The real reason it got finished, and I just didn't return the advance money and, and uh, <laughs> become an outcast in, in the uh, literary field, was because I had a racetrack accident. I was in intensive care for a week, got pretty banged up, and for eight weeks, I literally couldn't move. I could just hobble around. I could, like, hobble from the bed to my desk, sit there, and then hobble back to bed. So about the second week into it, the first week after I was out of intensive care, I realized I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and staying awake till 7 or 8 that night, then I'd pass out again. That's when I actually sat down and wrote the book. It got finished then, and I don't want to go through that again. Future so, editors should break your knees, is what you're saying. Yeah, that just sucked, you know. So you're writing for Motorcycle Cruiser. Yeah, I do that. Um, any other magazines that listeners can read you in? Uh, I do a column in Classic Bike Guide, which, as its name would imply, is devoted just to the classic. And I also still do the column for Old Bike Journal, which is just a help question and answer. You know, it goes goes really to the heart of what you guys have been asking about. When I first started to do that, there were questions on, you know, how do I properly adjust the valves on my Triumph, which on the old Triumphs, it's, it's a pain in the ass because they sit down in, in the um, rocker boxes, and it's kind of hard. They're hard to get at, so guys never quite, there, there's a lot of little tricks to getting them accurate, and guys were buying these bikes, and they didn't know how to do it, trying to follow the service manual and said, oh, you know, unscrew the cap and adjust the valve, which is almost impossible in most cases. <laughs> without special gauges or, or knowing the tricks. And the, the biggest trick is if you know how many threads are on the adjuster, you can just run them down until they stop, back them off X number of turns, and each turn of the thread equates to a thousandths of valve clearance. So back it off an eighth of a turn and you end up with two thousandths valve clearance. Now the questions are more about the, the gas I'm buying sucks, and I put it in my 86 Honda Magna, now it won't start. What do I do? So, 
that end of it has changed. So, yeah, those three magazines. My leathers clash with my Harley. What do I do? Um, get a new bike. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the only solution in that one. Well, cool. So you can read Mark in the three magazines. Check out his book. That, the Essential Guide to Motorcycle Maintenance. One yeah. of my favorites. How to Restore Your Motorcycle. Um, the BMW Buyer's Guide, right? Oh, that's, yeah, you know, that that one I get beat up for all the time. <laughs> and, of course, if you have a psychiatric disorder or, you know, need some yeah. sort of mental state. Or Check out his Star Trek, if you're into Star Trek. <laughs> i got to tell you, that BMW guide, a guy wrote me a really nasty email. He said, you, you don't give these bikes the respect they deserve. <laughs> I said, listen, I was a BMW dealer for 10 years. If you knew how I really felt about them, You'd be afraid to email me with a return address. <laughs> well, Mark, this has been a real hoot. Thanks for coming on with us. Oh, anytime. It was fun. So that was cool. I really, I, the thing I think that resonates most with me that he said was when he was talking about how the new bikes are unnecessarily complex. I mean, like, it does good things for them, but you can't get into it yourself. Do you think that's because you don't think it's necessary in the bike or because you really like tinkering with your bike? Hmm. That's a good question, actually. I don't know, because I do like tinkering my bike. And me being me, I would probably figure out how to tinker with it. I'm a big fan of the using the paperclip to uh, jump jumpers in order to put the bike into factory mode, rather than buying the Switch for $60. So maybe not so much because they're bad designers, maybe not because there's some conspiracy to keep us from working on the bikes. Maybe you just like tinkering. Could be. Could be. So as you're saying, it's a Todd problem. Well... Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so we got an email from Charlie reacting to my uh, reviews of the many bikes last week. Nice. So, hey guys, still listening to your show even after seeing Todd and Durango. <laughs> a couple things on the Versus and the F800 ST, which are actually bikes you should check out too, Jen. First, the Versus. I believe it had a couple of mods. First, it was lowered, and the one I rode was definitely lowered, with the lowering link in the back and the forks raised and the triple clamp, which should theoretically make the geometry the same. Okay, but... I actually wanted to ask you about that, mm. lowering bikes. Sure. Are there certain bikes you should lower and certain bikes you should leave the hell alone? Generally speaking, a bike that is going to have, at least from where I'm sitting, a bike that's going to have trouble cornering already, it's just not going to have a lot of clearance, like a Volusia, which is what I used to ride at Cruiser, right. didn't have a lot of cornering clearance. Except Yutz's online are lowering these bikes because it looks cool. So you get rid of your cornering clearance. So now basically you can tilt the thing over about five degrees before things start hitting the ground. Um, and then it doesn't corner so well because you're uh, skidding, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So uh, I would say higher bikes, something like a Versus or a Strom or something that's kind of tall and already has pretty good cornering clearance, you could give up a little bit if you had to to lower it. So if I were absolutely in love with a Strom and thought, oh, I've got to do that. You may still be a little screwed with Strom. But, yeah, if you're absolutely in love with a Versus, say, you could lower it a little bit. Um, That's what Steph, the lady who loaned me her Versus to ride, did. Oh, I actually went home and measured my inseam. Mm. Because Chuck wanted to know. Well, okay, actually, he wanted to measure. But that's not going to (laughs) happen. I have a 27-inch inseam. (laughs) Good Lord. Which means I'm kind of short. Uh, so I think I'm kind of limited in the, the kinds of bikes that I can get, even if I lowered them. Mm-hmm. I just had a great image of you standing next to a V-Strump, jumping up and down, going, eh. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Actually, there's a great picture of Claire somewhere sitting on a KTM with neither of his feet in contact with the ground at all, despite the fact that his legs are completely straight. I was traveling uh, first class, and my feet don't hit the ground. <laughs> 
So you're like waving them like little no, kid yeah, on a stool? No, yeah, literally my, my shoes will fall off <laughs> if I'm sitting in for So what I do is I act very cool about it. Mm-hmm. I slide my shoes off and I curl my feet up in the chair like I meant to do that. Oh, solid. I know, right? Otherwise, I look like I'm three years old. <laughs> Can I have some wine? Are you old no. enough for wine? <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie goes on and he talks about the verses. He says, there were also lowering blocks on the pegs, he thinks. My comments that the verses aren't as scrunched up as the 800 um, actually don't jive with what a lot of people say. They say, actually, the legs are kind of scrunched up on the verses in general. So, I don't know. I'm going to have to go to one in the showroom and check it out. Second, he says, on the F800 ST, I'm a little ha, taller than Todd. Charlie's about six and a half feet tall. <laughs> I was going to say he's like three feet taller than you. Yeah, though my knees are in better shape despite being almost as old as Chuck. That's because you're not as awesome as skier as me. I also <laughs> I actually got a chance to do quite a few miles on the bike as we acquired it. It had to be ridden back from Austin. I was pretty impressed with how unscrunched it was as a sport tourer. It's not lowered, nor does it have the low seat on it, but it does have bar risers, bar backs on. I was a bit confused when Todd commented about how scrunched up he felt on it. It had more room than my Sprint ST used to, and I was much happier on the F800 than the big bike. Oh, so you do need to go and try out some more. Yeah, I just need to try out some more. Also, not that I'm... you need an excuse. Yeah, well, you know, I also need some money. Money? Yeah, money. What? It's that stuff you can exchange for goods and services. Jen, I have a confession to make. What? I was, I was going online today looking at vehicles. And? They weren't motorcycles. What were you? Was... No! No! Todd! I was looking oh! at dad cars. I was like, how bad are dad cars these days? Are they all as bad as minivans? Don't tell me you looked at a minivan. I didn't look at a minivan. Okay. No, no, I have some some dignity left. All right. I'll, some small shard. I'm able to breathe again because... Yeah, I didn't look at a minivan, but I did look at different dad cars. And uh, I was like, wow, I, I don't know if I can go here yet. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. With one kid, I figure we can get away with it, right? We can still have cool, cool young people car. Because the car seat fits in the back, right? Does it? Yeah, we think. I've been in your car. Most likely. I'm not sure I fit in the back seat. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Charlie also goes on to note that the Z-Rex, if you're tall, your knees hit the cylinders, <laughs> which are hot. And if you're wearing shorts, this isn't as fun as it might sound. Finally, I'd make comments on enjoying the 800-650 size bikes, but you just mock me more, given that you know what I ride. Charlie rides a uh, Multistrada, the new one, at about 150-plus horsepower oh. in a 450-pound bike. It's one of those bikes that I get on and I ride, and I start doing that giggle thing in my helmet where I'm going... <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and you're glad that you didn't actually bring your wallet with you? <laughs> it goes fast. <laughs> You're not ready for a dad car. <laughs> Wait, if I'm a dad, doesn't that mean I'm calmer and I can buy a speed triple? No. Come on, I'll totally be good with it. I won't speed ever. Your wife would kill you. I, I kill. She would kill you. I know her. <laughs> and she would kill you, Todd. It's, it, it's distinctly possible. No. Okay. If you have a really cool bike, mm-hmm. or if you have, it doesn't even have to be really cool. It could be a Ural. Mm-hmm. Can you still get a dad car? Because it kind of weighs in the opposite direction, right? You have that balance thing going on. That's a good point, actually. I, my, I have, like, a law of conservation of coolness. Exactly. So, like, I get the dad car, but then I get a speed triple, and so it, like, kind of balances out. Right. So the more dad car it is, should you ever get a minivan, you could get the speed triple. I could get the awesomest bike I want. I yeah. like it. The law of conservation of cool. I'm in. <laughs> as long as I don't have to talk to your wife. <laughs> Jen's going out through the window. She's not. She already warned me once tonight not to encourage you. <laughs> she means that in a loving sort of way, not I, a threatening way. I felt that. <laughs> she terrifies me. <laughs> so, what have you learned this week, Jen? 
Well, I've learned that if I were tall, <sighs> I shouldn't get the Z-Rex. <laughs> I've learned that I should buy a really cool bike as long as I buy a really lame-ass car. Start with the lame-ass car. Start with the lame-ass car that your wife is very happy that you got. Oh, she doesn't want me to get a lame-ass car. She says she'll, she'll never drive it if I do. You're screwed either way. There is no <laughs> law of conservation of coolness or no, you are screwed. I've learned that I am screwed. And that's all we've got time for this week. Until next week, I'm Todd. And I'm Fake Chuck. Ride safe, everyone. We'll see you next week. Hello, I'm Austin Finn. And so far, I've never endorsed any product in my entire life, apart from everything in the Tourette's catalog. <laughs> uh, I'd like to take this chance to encourage my American cousins, and you all are, even the Mexican ones, to buy some wheelnerds.com stuff. I'm going to go online. I'm going to click, click, bang, and get myself a, um, a wheelnerds.com sticker. I'm going to stick it on my top box, and it'll be there uh, for the rest of the time until my bike is inevitably consumed in flames. If you like this podcast, you can find more like it at wheelnerds.com. This has been a Wheelnerds production, all rights reserved. Readings from other sources are the property of their respective owners and are used with satirical intent.